welcome to another inspirational message from Dave Coop, Senior Pastor of Coastal Church in Vancouver, Canada. We're talking about one of the greatest sermons ever given, if not the greatest in all of history, is Jesus giving a sermon on the mountain, and he talks to his disciples and the crowd that's there to hear them. Now, remember, the Sermon on the Mount is given to his disciples. It's uh, for kingdom living. It's not given to the government. It's not given to the university. It's not given to the police force. It's given to us. As believers, this is how we're supposed to live. So that's good to keep in mind as you go through it. Otherwise, you can kind of get off track on the sermon. This is for us. This is the way we're supposed to live. And basically, it's the law of love. It's it's a greater way. He said, I will show you a greater way. Well, this is a greater way, and uh, it will take faith to live this way. And a lot of times it won't make sense, but after you do it, you'll look back and say, man, that was brilliant. That really worked. And uh, it'll also take the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Not by our might, not by our strength, but by His Spirit, we can live this out. The results will be amazing. By living this out, we become salt and we become light. Remember a few weeks ago, we said, Coastal Church, you're salt. Coastal Church, you're the light. Jesus is saying today, in the heart of Vancouver, he's saying, Coastal Church, Coastal Church, you're the salt. Coastal Church, you're the light. Well, I'm waiting for somebody else to be salt. I'm waiting for something. No, no, we're it. We're it. Guess what? We're all God's got to work with. Now, that's actually a good thing because I think... He's picked a pretty good group by looking around here, but we're the salt and we're the light that God's going to work with here in our city. When he goes to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking a lot of the sayings that are said that in the day, and he's explaining them, rebranding, renaming. He's giving a fresh look on it because it got so twisted. You know, they would say, last week we talked about you heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, it's not about the murder. Really, the law was you're not supposed to get angry. That gets to the murder. Don't be angry. It starts at anger, not at murder. So he, he, he brings those sayings, and he brings a freshness, renames it, so to speak, so that they really get and understand what was being meant. I came across this article about food that got renamed. Some food gets renamed, so it gets eaten. Did you know that? In 1977, a fish merchant by the name of Lee Lance traveled to Chile and discovered the toothfish. I never knew of such a thing, but there's a toothfish, a species the locals deemed too oily to eat. 30 years and a name change later, Chilean sea bass is so popular with American palates that it's almost on the verge of extinction. Then here's another one. After Canadians developed an oil from the rapeseed plant, they still had to deal with the name. So in 1988, the FDA approved a name change to canola oil, and sales shot up. We know it as canola oil. We don't call it rapeseed oil. We call it canola oil. It's a lot nicer to use calling it canola oil. Here's one. When the California Prune Board, I didn't know California had a prune board, but apparently there's a prune board. California Prune Board realized the words prune and laxative were linked. They switched to dried plums in 2000. People bought it. And in a documented focus group, preferred the taste of dried plums to prunes, even though they're the same thing. So there you go. Just change the name and people got it. In 1960, Frida Kaplan, an American produce importer, changed the name of the Chinese gooseberry to the kiwi fruit after New Zealand's national bird, which is also round, brown, and furry. And popularity spiked on that fruit. Here's one more. Even though the bony fish known as a dolphin fish was unrelated to the mammal of the same name, diners still balked at ordering it. 
So in the mid-1980s, you know what the restaurants did? They used the Hawaiian name, Mahi Mahi, and all thoughts of Flipper were forgotten. So all they had to do was change the name on it. They rebranded it, explained it differently, and people understood it. Well, people were getting confused over what was said in the day. And Jesus sits down the mountain and he says, let me explain this to you. When the law said thou shalt not murder, God wasn't saying you can treat people any way you want to be angry, hate people, but as long as you didn't didn't commit murder, you didn't do anything wrong. That's not what he's saying. He's starting at the heart issue. You can't, anger will destroy your life and others. Now, today we're going to go on with some of the others you've heard it said and explain what they mean. So number one, this message is on responding to harassment. Have you ever been harassed in your life? If you haven't, welcome to the planet. Your day's coming. But at some point or another, you're going to get harassed. Somebody's going to give you a hard time. Somebody's going to despitefully use you. Somebody's going to get angry at you. Somebody's going to hate you. And you're going to have to deal with it. Well, how do I deal with it when people harass me? The word harassment comes from an original French word, which means to irritate a dog so much that it gets mad at you. Well, if you've ever gotten a dog really angry, that's where harassment comes from. And sometimes people just harass you enough that you get angry, you get upset, and you want to react, you want to, you want to get even. And so this afternoon we're looking at this and our Sermon on the Mount, the talk that Jesus gave. He gives us some instruction how to react when somebody gives us a hard time. Number one, don't take the law into your own hands. Somebody gives you a hard time, you just say, man, oh, man, you ran over my dog, I'll run over your dog and your cat. You backed into my truck, I'll back into your garage. We'll get this straightened out. I don't care what the, I'm not going to wait for the judge, I'm not waiting for the police, I'm going to, oh, I'll fix you. Well, Jesus said, no, no, we're not going to live that way. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that's often quoted. People, well, they, they don't know anything about Jesus, they don't know anything about the Bible, but they've heard that phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm going to get back at you. Jesus had to correct them because they took that verse, they cherry-picked that verse, and they used it as an excuse for revenge. You got back, you heard me, I'm going to get back at you, and then some. It wasn't for revenge. It was not for personal vendetta. This verse was given for a judicial system, for a civil court, that if somebody committed a crime, there should be punishment that coincided with the crime committed, that the punishment should not be greater than what the person who committed the crime deserved, but it should be respected. And he addresses this. It's not up to us to take the law in our own hands. This was meant for a country to run. In the Old Testament, he's talking about how the country should be run. He gives a great eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But they took it personally, that I get to do whatever I want to people. He says, you can't live that way. That's going to end you up in trouble. That still applies today. So he goes on to tell us on what we should do. The next verse starts with a but. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. You've heard it said, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. So point number two is exercise self-control when dealing with violence. Isn't that challenging? When somebody gets upset at you, somebody hurts you, it's very difficult to control yourself because you just want to lash out and you want to do the same thing they did to you. Jesus is saying, be very careful. Don't catch their disease. What they've got, their bitterness, their anger, their unforgiveness, don't catch that thing because that will end up killing you, hurting you, destroying your life. Don't catch that. Don't respond with violence. Rather, have self-control. When there's been a wrong done, where there's been injustice, 
We're not to resort to violence or force to expose or to correct that wrong. There's another way to do this. I don't know of a better example perhaps in our lifetime than that of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize, the youngest man to ever win it in the 60s. And he is an example of somebody who turned the other cheek. And he exposed an injustice, not with violence, but he exposed. He, he, he brought an equality to a nation that needed an equality between the blacks and the whites. He brought an equality there. How? By turning the other cheek. I came across an explanation of this, turning the other cheek, that made sense to me. I'll share it with you. It helped me understand this. And you have to go to the culture and the, and the way they did things in those times, the people that Jesus was speaking to. Notice in verse number 39, but whoever slaps you on your, what? Right cheek. Turn the other to him also. So he very specifically says the right cheek. And he very specifically says slaps. In every culture today, including Canada, if, I, if someone was to give you a backhanded slap, it's very demeaning. It means I want to control you. I want to have dominion over you. I want to, I, 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 really, it's, it can be abusive, dominating, controlling. If a husband gives his wife a backhanded slap, I mean, that's very degrading, very abusive, and it just, you shrink back from that. He says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, so if I slap somebody on the right cheek, it's a backhanded slap. We know that because they didn't use the left hand. The left hand in the Middle East and still in some countries today was reserved for bathroom use. So the right hand was used to shake hands, to do business with. It was the right hand. So if I slap backwards with the right hand, I'll hit the right cheek. Jesus says after that, look carefully, turn the other to him also. So somebody's giving you a backhanded slap on the right cheek. He says, turn the other cheek to him also. Now I've exposed the left cheek. Can I give that same slap to the left cheek? No. It won't work. Now with the right hand, I can't give that same backhanded slap. I have to, I'd have to use my right hand to punch or to slap it another way, but I can't do that same action. What this article was saying as it explained this in the time, the culture of the day, was that by turning the other cheek, the statement was being made you try to exert dominion, control, and show yourself to be better than me and to dominate me, but I'm giving you this other cheek to demonstrate to you that I want justice and I'm wanting equality. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor bond. We are equal in Christ's eyes. There was a woman who came to the judge, and she said in Luke chapter 18, I want to have justice. God's okay with us saying there needs to be justice, there needs to be equality. By turning the other cheek and saying, no, no, we're going to make this on equal basis. You don't get this upper hand to slap me around. There is going to be justice and equality. Martin Luther King demonstrated that when he changed the course of history in the 60s. Here's a little clip of part of his speech of one of the things that he had to say regarding this. Let's listen carefully. In response to the repressive forces of segregation, King evoked the Christian doctrine of love. This meant maintaining compassion for the white people of Montgomery while fighting their discriminatory system. He loves the person and hates the evil deed. And I think this is what Jesus meant when he said, love your enemies. And I'm happy that he didn't say like your enemies because it's pretty difficult to like some people. It's difficult to like people bombing your home and threatening your children and 
kicking you about, but Jesus says love them, and love is greater than life. Love is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. And I always have to stop and try to define the meaning of love in this area. And interestingly enough, Greek philosophy comes to our aid at this point. Agape is more than friendship. Agape is not something affectionate. Agape is understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. It is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. Theologians would say that it is the love of God operating in the human heart. And when one rises to love on this level, he loves men not because he likes them, but he loves every man because God loves him. Amen. When somebody rises to love at this level, we love every person because they are God's creation. We are equal. And you come along to me and you try to exert some dominion over me and give me this slap and try to control my life, I will give you my other cheek and say, we're equal and we'll deal this justly on equal basis. In his speech, Love Your Enemies, Martin Luther King said this. 1957, November 17th, he preached a message on Love Your Enemies. In hard times, he spoke this to people that were being slapped around and he said, now first let us deal with this question, which is the practical question. How do you or how do I go about loving your enemies? I think the first thing is this, he writes, or he spoke. In order to love your enemies, you must begin by analyzing self. And I'm sure that seems strange to you that I start out telling you this morning that you love, that you love your enemies by beginning with a look at self. And I'm aware of the fact that some people will not like you, not because of something you've done to them, but just, they just won't like you. Some people aren't going to like the way you walk. Some people aren't going to like the way you talk. Some people aren't going to like the way you, like you because you do a better job than they can do. Some people aren't going to like you because other people like you, because you're popular, and because you're well-liked, they aren't going to like you. Some people aren't going to like you because your hair is a little shorter than theirs or your hair is a little longer than theirs. Some people aren't going to like you because your skin is a little brighter than theirs and others aren't going to like you because your skin is a little darker than theirs. They're going to dislike you, not because of something you've done to them, but because of various jealous reactions and other reactions that are so prevalent in human nature. But after looking at these things and admitting these things, we must face the fact that an individual might dislike us because of something we've done down deep in the past, some personality attribute that we possessed, something we've done deep down in the past, we've forgotten about it, but it was that something that aroused the hate response within the individual. That is why I say, begin with yourself. There might be something within you that arouses a tragic hate response in the other individual. He's speaking this to a people that were oppressed. He's speaking to a people that were abused. He said, begin with yourself. Is there something in me? Some things are beyond your control, but there's some things that you've done that's caused people to hate you. But remember, the Bible says to love your neighbor as yourself. It starts with looking at myself. Then he goes on to say in his message, he says, the second thing that an individual must do in seeking to love his enemy is to discover the element of good in his enemy. Sometimes it takes a discovery. You won't find it on the Discovery Channel. You have, to, you, know, you have to think about it and pray about it. And every time you begin to hate that person and think of hating that person, realize that there is some good there and look at those good points which will overbalance the bad points. Would you agree with him that there's some good in everybody? Instead of looking for the bad and only seeing the bad, you say, what can I see good about that person? And I'm going to focus on the good in that person. And then he says, another way that you love your enemy is this. Very good insight. When the opportunity presents itself for you to defeat your enemy, that is a time that you must not do it. 
There will come a time in many instances when the person who hates you the most, the person who misused you, the person who gossiped about you, the person who spread false rumors about you, there will come a time when you have an opportunity to defeat that person. He goes on to say, when you have that opportunity, when you could defeat them, do not defeat them. Do not defeat them. He said, when we talk about love, love is creative, understanding, goodwill for all men. It is the refusal to defeat any individual. Then he lastly said, there's another reason why we should love your enemies. And this is because hate distorts the personality of the hater. We usually think of what hate does for the individual hated or for the individual hated or the groups hated. But it is even more tragic. It is even more injurious to the individual who hates. You just begin hating somebody and you'll begin to do irrational things. You can't see straight when you hate. You can't walk straight when you hate. You can't stand upright. Your vision is distorted. There's nothing more tragic than to see an individual whose heart is filled with hate. For the person who hates, you can stand up and see a person and that person can be beautiful. But for the person who hates, they're ugly. The beautiful becomes ugly. The good becomes bad. The true becomes false. That's what hate does. He gave a good discourse on loving your enemies. He referred back to the Sermon on the Mount. We're referring to the Sermon on the Mount today. You can look through history. A lot of great people, a lot of people who stood tall, head and shoulders above the rest, built their life on the Sermon on the Mount. We talked last week about Timothy Eaton. We know his stories were all across the country. Timothy Eaton at his funeral, they said, here was a man who purposed to live his life based on the Sermon on the Mount. Like we said earlier... Jesus had mentioned at the end of the sermon, he said, you can hear these words and apply them and you will build your house on a solid foundation. Or you can not hear them, not apply them, and you build your house that looks like a shack. Why did Martin Luther King build a towering, towering high rise? Because he built it on these words. Why did Timothy Eaton build a company that stood the test of time and, and treated his employees right and churches that had been built after him? How did he do that? Because he built his life on the Sermon on the Mount. Guess what? You and I have that same opportunity. We could build our life on this. We could choose to live this way. It would be salty. We'd shine. We'd look differently. God's challenging us this morning. Do you want to be my followers? He said, if you love me, then follow me. So we say, I love the Lord. If we love the Lord, then we what? We follow the Sermon on the Mount. This is great, classic Jesus. And it takes time. You have to go through it. You've got to kind of think about it. How do I apply it? but we need to apply it into our lives. Number three, when people harass us, what should we do? Overcome evil with good. Matthew 5, 40 and 41, he says, if anyone sues you and takes away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. What's he saying here? Basically, in a nutshell, it's this. Jesus wants us to face the issue on moral grounds, not just on legal grounds. Well, I can legally get away with this. Maybe you can legally get away with it, but is it morally right? I can legally, I don't have to pay them any more than this, but is it morally right? I don't have to do this, but is it morally right? Well, we do it in my country where I came from. It doesn't matter which country you came from. This applies to every country, every land. You treat your employees right. You treat your employer right. 
You treat your country right. You treat your fellow human being right. You live by higher law as a believer. Amen. It's not how much I can get away with. It's not how much I can take. It's how much I can give. Well, what can I get out of this country? I want this benefit. I want this benefit. I want this right. I want that right. Where's the charter rights? Let me see that charter rights. I want all my rights. Jesus, let me teach you a better way. Let me teach you to lay down your life. Let me give you the keys that unlock the joy of the abundant life. It's found in the Sermon on the Mount. Overcome evil with good. Then he says, whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. They knew what he was talking about. They lived under Roman oppression. And a Roman soldier could come along at any time and say, Hey, dude, you carry my armor for a mile. A full mile. They legally had to do that. No choice. They didn't want to do it. Can you imagine if Canada was overtaken by another country? Pick a country. Let's say they're overtaken by the country of Timbuktu. <laughs> I don't know. If Anyhow, soldiers come in. They take over the land. They set up a post in downtown Vancouver. Soldiers everywhere. On any given day, they can just come up to you and say, Hey, I want you to work for me for half a day. Stop everything you're doing. Come work for me. Wouldn't that just get kind of old and tiring? They come and work for me for half a day. You got to do this. We're just like, like, I hate being under this oppression. That's how they felt. But Jesus was saying, after you were forced to work for half a day, I want you to work for them another half a day voluntarily. I mean, that's radical teaching. But here's what he was talking about. He said, the first mile is what's legally required of you. But when you go the second mile, you've just entered the miracle zone. That's a place where miracles begin to happen. Now you've entered past the legal mile. Now you're into this mile of grace. Woo! That's where it takes place. You can sum it up in three words, and then some. You do what you've been asked to do, and then some. You always tack on the and then some. And everything you do, tack on the end, and then some. Or another phrase, better than it was. I came to church, I sat down in my pew, and when I left, it was better than it was. Well, how would you do that? You'd pick up some garbage off the ground. You'd sort it out. You'd just straighten out the things in front of you. you go to your workplace, and you show up at work, and the boss asks you to be there for eight, but you're there at five to eight. Why? Because you're doing your job and then some. You go to clean something up. Your mom or your, your wife asks you to clean something up. You clean up the garage and you did that and then some. You did the garden as well or you, you figure it out. You do and then some. That's the second mile. He says a higher life to live. I know. I know, honestly. We don't live that way. The world doesn't live that way. I know this like, well, (laughs) I I hope somebody enjoys that, but that's not my world. Jesus invaded our world. He invaded our world. When we invited our life, he invaded our world, so to speak. He shows up, he says, let me show you how to live. You tried the other way, being all about me, myself, my four, no more, and you weren't happy. Let me show you a way that will make you happy. Incredible joy, and then some. Yeah, it's attitude. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, 3 to 6. Don't be selfish, Paul says. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble. Think of others as better than yourself. Don't only think about your own affairs. Isn't that our world today? We just think about our own affairs. 
my rights, my privileges, my wage, my life, it's about me. He says, don't just think that way, but be interested in others too and what they're doing. Look at this verse. It's bolded in your notes. Your attitude, my attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. Hey, folks, if Jesus didn't do it, we're not above our master. If he didn't do it, I guess we don't get to do it. It's so quiet in this church today. I know it's not because you're not receiving. We're processing. I'm processing. Okay, how do I? I this is what I live out. I, I know you're receiving. It's just processing. How do I process this? How do I? Okay, how does this work? It's really by faith. But he's calling us to this amazing life. He's challenging us to live this way. And then number four, live generously. When people harass you and they give you a hard time, how do I do it? Overcome evil with good. And then also live generously. If we're going to live anyway, let's do it generously. If we're going to err, err on the side of being generous. Carl Menninger, who studied a lot of people as a doctor in mental institute, said this. He discovered this. Generous people are rarely, rarely mentally ill. When you're generous and you live to give, it affects the way you think about others and yourself. Stingy, hoarding people that are consumed by fear and scarcity go nuts. I know this is really boiled down today, but... Generous people, wow. Because a generous person is like, they're not afraid there's not enough to go around. When you're generous, I'm not giving. Some people are, hesitate to be generous because if I am generous and if I do give this, I might lose control. If I am generous and I give them this, they might mismanage it. So I don't know if I'm going to do that. I'll just keep it for myself and if I get to manage it, then I'll give. Everything we have is a gift from God, Amen. And as much as he's trusted us to steward it, he'll grant us opportunities that we get to steward it to others. And when it releases your hand and you give to somebody else, their responsibility is now to steward that gift, and you don't have to be fearful of how it's managed. That's now their responsibility in general. Give to them. Jesus says, give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Give to him who asks you. 275 times the Bible says, believe, believing, believe, believer. 371 times it says prayer, praying. 714 times love, loving, give, giving. You know how many times that's in the Bible? According to this count, 2,162. I think God's trying to tell us something. We need to be givers. It's in our DNA. For God so loved the world, he gave. He's saying on the Sermon on the Mount, live generously. You've heard it said, but I say to you, somebody wants to take this up, live generously, overcome evil with good, live a generous life. Give to him who asks you. If you see your brother in need and you have the means to help him, help him. John said, if you don't, does the love of God really abide in your heart? You say you're a Christian, but you're so stingy, you're hoarding so much, we can't see the love of God in you. Give generously. Now, it is possible to take this scripture, cherry pick it, and misuse it, and people have done that. I've had people come up, and they've quoted that verse when they tried to con me out of something. Well, you Christians, you're supposed to give because I asked. Now give. (laughs) 
Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't give to somebody when it would enable them to do something wrong. You don't give to something if it would cause them to do something illegal. If little Johnny comes up to dad and says, Dad, I went to Sunday school, and the verse was give, uh, uh, give to him who asks of you. Guess what? I'm asking for the car. Dad, I know I'm only 14, but I want the car. Now, you've got to give it to me. No, he, he, that would be foolish. It would be illegal. It would be wrong. Take the full counsel of the scriptures when you look at this. We don't give into something that would be abusive, that would be illegal, that would enable somebody to do something immoral. <laughs> we have the doorbell ring on quite a few occasions where people will come to the door and they're, they're looking for... Uh, a bus pass to some place or they're looking for money and they, they, they have a story to tell. I've been conned a lot of times, <laughs> too many times, but I've learned over the years to, to spot it. And I found out this, that the bigger the story, the grander the story, the bigger chance that it's a con, it's a lie. And uh, when people sit down and they begin to tell me their story and they go through Oh, all this. And after I ask a few questions, I realize, you know what? They're asking me to give them something, but they're flat out lying to me. This is nothing but a made-up story. You know what I do? I don't give them anything. I just say, thank you very much for coming. I don't think you've been truthful to me. I'm not going to be able to help you. Why? Because I'm not going to enable that lying spirit. Sometimes they just go from church to church, and they just look for one more place to con. I'm not going to enable that. I'm not going to give in to that. I don't think that would be good stewardship. There's something called a boundary. And please remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not saying do away with boundaries. If you wrestle with boundaries and that issue, there's a great book on boundaries by Dr. Henry Cloud, when to say yes and when to say no. Sometimes we need to say no. And it's not wrong to say no. That's good stewardship of your life and your belongings. So don't, you can take this scripture and twist it and often those that look at Christians, they'll look at an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. They'll look at these verses, and they'll use them in a wrong way to manipulate. So we have to be wise on that. Then lastly, number five, love your enemy. So much was said in that little clip by Martin Luther King. But let's look at these verses here. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard it said. Now, they're quoting Leviticus chapter 19. But in Leviticus chapter 19, it says, you shall love your neighbor. How does it go? What's the rest of that verse where you go? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. They left that part out. They left out the love your neighbor as thyself or as yourself. Very conveniently, they took out part of the scripture. And then very conveniently, they added and hate your enemy. The Bible never says, God never said anywhere, hate your enemy. He says, love your enemy. But nowhere does he say to hate your enemy. And he says, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. We heard that little sermon from Martin Luther King, some of the ways how to love yourself, to look at yourself. But we're also to, if we love ourselves, we'll love other people. If you hate yourself, you end up hating other people. One of the best exercises we can do is look in the mirror and say, I like you. I love you. We're created in his image. If you love yourself in a healthy way, it's possible to love others. But they weren't doing this. They were twisting the words, so Jesus corrects them. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. 
Somebody hates you at work, gives you a hard time. You just want it, man, I get even. Man, you undercut me. I was up for that promotion. You lied to the boss about me. You, mis you twisted everything. I should be getting that raise. I should be in that office. Man, you wait. How, how would Jesus want you to respond? Order Sally a nice bouquet of flowers and send it to her. I don't know if her name's Sally, but you get the idea. You overcome evil with good. Do good to those who hate you. Find a way to do good. Gets the flowers. What's this? Who's this from? Well, it's from so-and-so. What? I just undermined her to get this job. She's sending me flowers and congratulating me. What, what is this? What do I do with this? You're putting a little bit of salt, putting some light there. You're changing the world. Then it says, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Please don't. Very carefully. Look at this verse. Verse 44. Pray for those. Why do I emphasize that? Because I've been in prayer meetings. They said, let's pray against them. We're going to pray against that movement. Or we're going to pray against these people. We don't, Jesus never asked us to pray against anybody, including our enemies. We're supposed to pray for our enemies. God bless them. Help them. If they don't know God, says, God, open their eyes. Let them see how good you are. I pray your blessing for them. We don't pray against people. We pray for people. The disciples got corrected on that. Jesus had said in Luke chapter I think, 9, he said to the disciples, hey, you guys go ahead. I want to have a meeting in these towns. Can you go make sure we have a hotel and some meeting rooms there? So the disciples, they truck up ahead and they, they go into town. They knock on the Best Western door. Hey, Jesus is coming to town. Can he book a room here and have a meeting? The Best Western says, no way. Jesus can't stay here. They go, oh, okay. So they go to Hampton and knock on the door. Jesus is coming to town. Can Jesus stay here and have a meeting? They go, no way. Don't want Jesus. Too controversial. So they go over to... The Shangri-La, five-star, pay the big bucks, knock on the door. Can Jesus stay here? They're no way, too controversial. Well, let's see, Sutton Place, five-star, or I don't know, I don't know if Shangri-La is five-star. I don't know, anyhow, another hotel. They go to, and all the hotels say, no, Jesus cannot stay at our hotel. They come back, they're ticked off. They were cursed. They were persecuted. They're upset. They come back. You know what they say to Jesus? Oh, they want to pray. Listen how they want to pray. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume these people? Let's burn up these suckers. Very spiritual. <laughs> Jesus says, you guys, you do not know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to destroy people. I came to save people. Please, we're not praying to burn them up. Pray for them. Don't pray against them. Don't you like Jesus? I love Jesus. I love his message here. So he asked us to do it this way. He asked us to love others. He said, you know what? Tax collectors, they love each other. You do more than that. Tax collectors were kind of the bad guys of the day. But you, you guys, you need to love your enemies as well. He ends up by saying, therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That word perfect doesn't mean you've never sinned not going to make any mistake. It means mature, ready to respond. And so how does he want us to live? Mature, ready to respond, equipped. How many of we live this way, the way Martin Luther King did during that era? How many of that just, you, you sense a maturity? When somebody strikes at you, you respond with maturity. When somebody undermines you, you're praying for them. 
God wants Coastal Church to be a mature church. He wants our actions to be mature in our workplace, in our home, our family, our community, to live this out with maturity. Amen? Now, before we close, and we're going to take communion in just a moment, I want to give you an opportunity this afternoon. You could be here and have heard about Jesus and hear the sayings of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. He made it very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You don't come to the Father but by me. If you'd like to receive this life, this promise that he gave to us, that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new person. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. Jesus didn't just give his life for us. He also gave his life to us. When? When I get to heaven? No, right now. He puts his spirit in your spirit. There's a miracle that takes place on the inside where your spirit and his spirit are galvanized together and you become one with God through the love of Christ. That could happen to you right now, this afternoon, just by saying, God, I receive your love for me. You've given it to me. I want to receive that. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to download free notes from this message or find out more information about Pastor Dave Coop, then we invite you to visit our website at www.coastalchurch.org.